Hello, dear ones. I'm coming to you um, on a bright and sunny morning today, right after a devastating storm that has hit the Northwest um, and that is now making its way through the middle of the United States and will end up in the East, on the East Coast. Um, it's a very severe storm and it has caused quite a lot of damage to our our places. And as this week's theme and content is is about place, I thought it might be fitting just to acknowledge the 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 pain that maybe some of us are feeling at seeing the places around us be um, torn to bits by by these horrible storms, and you know, just coming on the heels of a really disastrous fall in the Northwest when it comes to fires, um, can be a really uh, sad moment to look out your window. I remember um, driving up to my campus this week and just seeing the devastation here. So many trees um, just completely laid to waste and so much of our of our beautiful environment here really changed in terms of landscape. So um, it was devastating. And, and I'm hoping that those of you who have experienced this storm in a devastating way will find perhaps some peace in, in knowing that your story can be rewritten um, or, or revised or perhaps adapted to this new environment. And so I'm holding space for you today and your places. I also want to give a shout out and recognition um, of my many listeners who are coming from all over the world. Speaking of place, um, what an honor it is for me to, of course, serve our listeners and uh, my beautiful dear ones here in the United States, but in addition to that, to also serve my lovely listeners and, and dear ones around the world, including Germany and Canada, Italy and Portugal. And I know, too, that we have some followers on the Instagram account for Diamonds for Our Children from those countries and in addition from Russia. So I am here to say thank you and welcome to Diamonds for Our Children. I'm so grateful you're here and with that, let's get started thinking about place. Welcome to the Diamonds for Our Children podcast, a public humanities project and motherhood ministry. I'm your host, Katie Jo LaRiviere. Drawing on all aspects of what Pope St. John Paul II called the feminine genius, I gather together the narratives, expressions, and expertise of mothers as a collective epistolary given freely as a gift to all children who might need the loving and secure presence of motherhood. This podcast is for my little ones, of course, but it's also for you, dear one, whomever and wherever you may be. If you need the love of a mother, join me every Monday. Each episode is a facet of the diamond of motherhood and each contributes to a unified love that reflects light back onto the world. Let us fill our hearts up so that we can pour them out. Place and a mind may interpenetrate till the nature of both is altered. Nan Shepherd, The Living Mountain. 
In the summer of 2016, when you were very small, we took you hiking almost every weekend. The youngest one was only a few months old, so Dad and I took turns with the backpack. We took you to a new trail each time, and over the course of the summer, the Oregon landscape welcomed you from the volcanoes outside of Bend to the haystack rocks of the central coast. We only partially knew how good it would be for you and for us. The benefits were multi-layered. First of all, we were lucky enough to have bought a house through the combination of our hard work and your grandparents' generosity in a loan for the down payment. But the house was small, and with three of you, it could look like a tornado came through it in less than 10 minutes. Being outside was one way to keep the house clean, which is to say, one way to keep our family's sense of peace. Second, you had so much energy to burn. Besides being young and energetic, you two eldest were both anxious darlings, and nature was a remedy we could not overestimate. It was a long time later that I learned just 20 minutes walking outside and smelling in fresh air, especially under the canopy of trees, could literally change your brain chemistry. The energy it took to hike to Blue Pool or Sweet Creek Falls or Smith Rock channeled that anxiety and induced you to take a much-needed nap. Again, peace. We, we did it for peace. We took deep, full breaths and smelled the air. We became mindful of our steps within the landscape. We processed our worries and faced our anxieties together. But there were more and more layers. On our way up and down the trails of Spencer Butte and Cape Perpetua, and all through the Willamette National Forest, we practiced negotiating unexpected circumstances, recovering from a fall and the occasional skinned knee, and forging on when we were tired. We learned to pee outside. We learned to pack it in and pack it out. We built balance, practiced cross-body coordination, and learned to be okay with getting wet. We built tolerance and flexibility. We learned to press our limits and to respect each other's boundaries. We exercised our bodies, our hearts, and our souls. We practiced self-belief. When we went into the woods, we laid the groundwork for our stories, our family story, the story you would weave as you grew, perhaps the story of who you are now. As Catherine Alto writes in Writing Wild, Women Poets, Mavericks, and Ramblers Who Shape How We See the Natural World, quote, Storytelling is a form of mapping. It connects the self to the self, people to people, and people to places over time, end quote. Together, we explored our landscape. We began to map a life story, a history, but also a geography of the self. 
writing of Leslie Marmon Silco of Laguna Ancestry, Alto voices a truth for all persons. Stories, she writes, are profound narratives of identity. I deeply desire that you would make the natural world a part of your story. One chapter of your story, I hope, might be this one. In our wanderings, we learned to appreciate beauty and to see God's hand in the world. We began to understand His creation, the process of seed to flower to fruit to seed, the way a river can create a cool draft of air on a hot day, that a biodiverse forest feeds itself, the way the terrain changes from soil and fern to rock and ponderosa pine as we ascend the volcanic mountains of your home state. We begin to witness his genius and his gift. Thank you, God, for this beautiful view, you'd shout from the ridges of Crater Lake. And we learned to practice gratitude. We learned not to take for granted the land that brings us joy, the land that brings us food, the land through which our water flows sparklingly. We were learning that the land is alive as we are alive, that we depend upon it, and it is sacred because it was made by God, not necessarily because it was made for us. As we walked in the footsteps of those who had come before us on these same trails, we learned about our privilege, that the land was taken from indigenous people who kept it sacred. We mourned as much as we could from our limited perspective, the stories that had been lost by the taking of the land on which we were now writing our own narratives. As Alto explains, quote, trauma to an individual, to a people, and here she's writing especially concerning indigenous tribes of the Americas, trauma can dislocate personal coordinates and unravel the narratives that help us navigate the world. It can lead us to depression, grief, post-traumatic stress, addictions, and ostracization. Without unifying stories, without those maps of identity, we can become disconnected from ourselves, from our loved ones, our history, and our surroundings. And this is to say that another chapter in your story, I hope, will be the understanding that because we live here on this land, we have a responsibility to the stories we have interrupted. Out of respect for those stories and their tellers, respect for their deep humanity, we recognize our responsibility toward them. We have a responsibility to the land itself, of course, through environmental care, but also an obligation to acknowledge when our stories disrupt the stories of others, whether through individual or generational violence and ignorance. We have a responsibility to offer amends. We have a responsibility to thank Indigenous persons for their work and the knowledge they have given us. 
to listen to them and to promote their voices, to learn about them from them, to honor them, and to remember that they are a present people. So, identity, stories, and place, geography, land, and its features are all parts of the self. And this is why war and acts of displacement of people from their lands is such an atrocity. It doesn't just move people, it disrupts who they are. Tommy Orange's award-winning novel takes its title, There, There. That implication of place is already in that title, right? He takes the title from Gertrude Stein's reflection that her own place, the place Orange claims for himself several decades later, Oakland, California, was devoid of this sense of place that narrative cultivates. She said of the city, there is no there there. And yet Orange's book is a devastating and sublime account of the concept of place and people who claim it, the people who claim themselves within it. Orange accounts for multiple individual narratives that honor their protagonists' self-stories, and then he weaves them into a unified story in which a place meets its people and a people their place, each character a warping thread navigating the same weft of Oakland. Yet Orange's genius is that his claim on Oakland for a present native people simultaneously elegizes a deep loss of place due to colonization and claims a native self-story that is both resilient and consistent with its past. He compellingly argues that the story of native selfhood is married to place, yes, but that native selfhood is itself simultaneous. Here's Orange in the prologue to There There. Quote, being Indian has never been about returning to the land. Plenty of us are urban now, if not because we live in cities, then because we live on the internet, inside the high-rise of multiple browser windows. They used to call us sidewalk Indians called us citified, superficial, inauthentic, culturalist refugees, apples. An apple is red on the outside and white on the inside. But what we are is what our ancestors did, how they survived. We are the memories we don't remember, which live in us, which we feel which make us sing and dance and pray the way we do. Feelings from memories that flare and bloom unexpectedly in our lives like blood through a blanket from a wound made by a bullet fired by a man shooting us in the back for our hair, for our heads, for a bounty, or just 
to get rid of us. He continues, explaining that bullets, quote, send our bodies flailing through the air like flags, like the many flags and buildings that went up in place of everything we knew this land to be before, end quote. Comparing the bodies of his murdered people to the flags a nation uses to show ownership, orange shows how flags contain violence because they symbolize ownership of a place that belongs to someone else through violence. How such violence interrupts the story of a people and of selves, and how that interruption can then be used against them many generations later after they have worked and survived to recultivate a sense of place. Yet Orange also examines the role that memories play in our understanding of identity and makes a similar argument to Altos. It's memory, both actively remembered and living in our bodies and souls. He says, but what we are is what our ancestors did, how they survived. We are the memories we don't remember which live in us, which we feel, which make us sing and dance and pray the way we do, feelings from memories that flare and bloom unexpectedly in our lives. And this is the kind of memory I have hinted at so often on our journey together in this podcast, the memory that will suddenly arise for you, baby, when you realize that the way you are is a result of me and all your unspoken influences that have somehow seeped into your way of being. What I want for you so deeply is that when this living memory arises in you, it will be a force of goodness, joy, beauty, and truth in your life. And as I make that wish, I become aware of the rest of Orange's simile, Those, quote, memories that flare and bloom unexpectedly in our lives like blood through a blanket from a wound. I pray that your memories of me will never be a wound. I also pray that you will have the courage and humility to acknowledge that though you personally may not have stolen land or selfhood, on a colonial industrial scale, you, darling, you benefit from that past action. And your brothers and sisters in the world still suffer its loss. If living in our family has taught you anything about the concept of fairness, I hope the thing you remember is that fairness is not the same as justice. And we were made for justice which is a far greater virtue. Fairness is giving everyone the same thing. But justice is making sure everyone has what they are due. And what is due to every person is exactly everything they will need to thrive, even if it doesn't seem fair. That oft-quoted scripture from Micah takes on a new meaning here, I think. Micah says, God has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Act justly. Love mercy 
and walk humbly with your God. I am not the paragon of living this perfectly, but if there's anything worth doing in this world, it is to ease the suffering of others through your own humility. It is to bloom those unexpected memories by acknowledging the blood-soaked blanket, by tending to the wound, and by offering to help weave a new one. Let's read some poems. Poems help us process, don't they? I want to read this poem by Gladys Cardiff, who grew up in Browning, Montana, very close to where I was born, and came of age in Seattle, Washington, where I also went to college and came of age. This poem is called To Frighten a Storm. Oh, now you come in rut, in rank and black desire, to beat the brush, to lash the wind with your long hair. Ha, I am afraid, exceedingly afraid, but see, her path goes there, along the swaying tops of trees, up to the hills. Too long she is alone. Bypass our fields and mount your ravages of fire and rain on higher trails. You shall have her lying down upon the smoking mountains. And now this other famous favorite poem by Mary Oliver. The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? When I was very young, Your papa took us into the woods, where he too seemed to find peace. The woods, I think, reminded him of his father Benjamin and mother Beverly, and of his siblings and their many camping trips and hiking through the damp northwest forests. They reminded him, I think, of his own origin story 
and reconnected him to his narrative of self. Your papa needed the forest economically, emotionally, spiritually. Papa would take us in his red pickup to cut our Christmas tree while we tromped around in snow higher than our heads. He was strong, and his salt and pepper mustache might as well have been a push broom for the snow on his face after the job was done. The woods were also a resource for us, so he had a kind of relationship with it. There is a picture taken in the early 90s of me and your Uncle Nate standing atop a pile of wood your papa had chopped and brought home in his truck to heat the house. He could buy a permit to cut his own wood and heat our house for a whole Montana winter for less than $20 at the time, which was way cheaper than electric heat. In the picture, Papa stands next to the truck, seemingly having just finished unloading and stacking the wood. Nate and I stand triumphantly atop the pile, and though he had done all the work, Papa allowed us the victory. In those long Montana winters, he'd work long and hard, freezing his fingers off in unfinished buildings, setting tile on his knees, always seeming to be kneeling at the altar of sacrifice for his family. Papa, never eating lunch and always drinking black coffee. After work, he'd haul armfuls of logs in from the woodpile and build a hot fire in the wood stove in the unfinished basement. Technically, it was our job to haul logs inside after getting off the school bus, one log per year of age. But my memories of Nate and I gathering logs and rolling them down the stairs to crash into the wall at the end of the stairwell are matched by memories of Papa kicking off his snowy boots just before crossing the threshold and puffing air from a sharp exhale under his mustache as he carried many more logs than seemed possible into the house. Papa also loved to take us sledding at Lindley Park or on a small hill your Oma dubbed Killer Ridge near the hospital. When Antonio, Papa's beagle, was alive, we'd go to Snowfill Park at the bottom of the Bridger Mountains and slide with him bolting down the hill by our sides. Papa had a real wooden toboggan sled and endless patience for all our whining about the cold. Papa seemed to understand innately that poetic phrase of Mary Oliver's, and he took us to the woods to enact it. Attention is the beginning of devotion. My formative memories of nature, the woods, work, and joy are wrapped up in his devotion to us. In the summer, Papa would take us hiking. When the oldest of you was just eight months old, we carried you in a backpack nearly 2,000 feet from the trailhead up the steep sides of Sacagawea Peak, which was half-washed out by a snowfield still frozen in July of most years. At the top, you posed with Daddy for a photo, next to the wooden sign labeling the summit. The sign is so faded now that you can barely make it out. Sacagawea Peak, an elevation not 500 feet shy of 10,000. 
We journeyed there with you that day to replicate a photo from 1990 or maybe 1989 when Papa took me to the top, just him and me, no big brother, no backpack. Sure, he probably carried me through several stretches on his shoulders, but he says I did most of it myself. I was four or five years old. Papa never dreamed I couldn't do it. He just took me. And you know, that is the singular most important thing I've learned from any hike ever. My dad never even considered doubting me. Papa took us to the woods for many reasons other than to summit or conquer them. In the wooded mountains, he grew less homesick for his home state of Washington, and he breathed more deeply in the woods than he did anywhere else. Despite his colorblindness, he loved the views of the mountains from above and below their summits. He loved the smell of trees, the smell of rain, the smell of wood smoke. He loved to swim in the pools below waterfalls and in the freezing, clear mountain lakes and rivers. My memory flashes to a common sight. We'd sit on the banks of the pool and he'd wade in to mid-shin. As soon as he knew it was a safe depth, he'd dive in as if off a starting block. We'd hold our breath as he held his underwater, and he'd come up shaking droplets from his hair, treading water. His smile would be twice as big as ours, and ours were the smiles of children watching Superman fly. Growing up in Montana is a singular privilege, especially in the early days while it was still true to its state motto, the last best place. The mountains were, as the modernist writer Nan Shepherd observed of the Cairngorms of Scotland, companionable allies. In her short and poetic volume, The Living Mountain, she explains that, quote, the mountain gives itself most completely when I have no destination, but have gone out merely to be with the mountain, as one visits a friend, with no intention but to be with him. When you encounter your natural home with shepherd's disposition, you gain a sense of place based on respect for what the earth is and your place within it. Writing about shepherd in her book, Writing Wild, Catherine Alto explains how, quote, her sense of place illustrated how decades of observation as a localist leads to deep knowing. Shepherd's sense of place is deep attachment, slow and deliberate attention, a wisdom gained through humility. A sense of place is paradoxical in that way, for as Shepherd also writes, the thing to be known grows with the knowing. One day, as we hiked on the Oregon coast, you saw a beetle dying. You spotted it immediately because you notice every detail. You bent low to the ground to observe it. But your observation wasn't pure curiosity. 
No, instead you lamented the end of this life. You looked up at me tearfully and said, Oh, Mama, that beetle had a life too. And in that moment, I knew you were cultivating your own sense of place, how connected you were to the little bodies that live there, how close you were to the ground, how much you understood everything has a life. I pray that you keep growing in that sense forever. I hope that you will have the chance to travel throughout your life. I don't necessarily want you to stay here forever. I want you to leave this place, to grow in many ways that other places can offer, and then to return. Returning will be its own lesson. And in returning, I hope you find the joy we have found in introducing this place to you and you to it. It's a joy that never has to end. As Shepard writes, quote, There must be many exciting properties of matter that we cannot know because we have no way to know them. Yet what we have, what wealth, I add to it each time I go to the mountain. The eye sees what it didn't see before, or sees in a new way what it had already seen. So the ear, so the other senses. It is an experience that grows. Undistinguished days add their part, and now and then, unpredictable and unforgettable, come the hours when heaven and earth fall away and one sees a new creation. The many details, a stroke here, a stroke there, come for a moment into perfect focus. And one can read at last the word that has been from the beginning. Okay, this week I am so full of resources for you, and they're all different kinds of resources. So if you find yourself unable right now to read a novel or um, do something uh, that's in long form, um, there are some resources here that are that are short um, and and easily accessible. If you find yourself wanting to read more, wanting to dive really deeply into this, um, the ideas that we're thinking about this week, then then there are some longer form ones here too. But I just couldn't help myself but recommend as many resources um, as I had on my mind this week. So the first one is a novel by Leslie Marmon Silko, whom I um, talked about early in the episode, and the novel is called Ceremony, um, published in 1977. The next one um, I've been promoting for the past couple of weeks in my conversations with Carlene, but it's the Cultivating Place podcast, um, and it is hosted by Jennifer Jewell, and it is absolutely a jewel, the whole podcast. So, I mean, just pick any moment that you will from her her long list of episodes, and you'll find yourself thinking in, an, in a way you hadn't perhaps before. 
Okay, the next one is a book uh, that I quoted several times today in the episode called Writing Wild. That's its short title by Catherine Alto and such a a beautiful um, collection of ideas and stories. So I really recommend that one, especially if you find yourself um, just wanting to read a little at a time and digest a little at a time. Writing Wild is an excellent um, book for that. And then I want to recommend any of Laurette E. Savoy's four amazing books. If you Google her or go to my show notes and find the link to her website, you'll find her um, her amazing work that really engages this idea of place. And then three more, if you can believe it. Um, I told you I'm full of resources this week. So the first uh, of these last three is There, There, the novel by Tommy Orange. It is, like I said, sublime and devastating and beautiful all at once. Uh, And then the poetic collection by Laylee Long Soldier, which is called Whereas, um, an absolutely just a thrilling uh, book of poetry. And in fact, maybe we will take a look at one of her poems in our poetry live readings that happen on Instagram every Tuesday, um, because I think, you know, she's just so captivating in terms of not only her form and her use of form, but her ideas um, and the way that she marries those two together. Such a true poet, Laylee Long Soldier. And finally, an On Being episode, um, a a podcast episode from On Being Project, which is kind of an old episode, actually, but has stuck on my heart and my mind for as long as it's been, I think, over a year since I heard it. Um, It's a conversation with David Troyer called Language Carries More Than Words, and I will be linking that one right on on the show notes on my website diamondsforourchildren.com so you can take a look at that as well. Okay, that's it for now my loves. Join me back here next week and every Monday. Thank you so much for spending time with me this week. You are a beloved child and today for just a few moments you chose to be with me. I'm so honored by that. I hope you can feel how much you are loved. If you know someone who could benefit by spending time with us, will you invite them to the Diamonds for Our Children community? Help them find our website at diamondsforourchildren.com. Send them a link to the show on Spotify, Apple, or any podcast platform. Or search for Diamonds for Our Children on Patreon.